We are living in most turbulent times. I suppose Charles Dickens got it mostly right, not talking about a Christmas carol, rather, in the opening lines of his classic, A Tale of Two Cities, he wrote, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Again, mostly right, if only the first of each of those couplets were true today. It seems the worst of times in almost every way, does it not? Think of it, political, social, economic, medical, racial, judicial, religious, educational, moral. Every institution is divided and under attack. People are not necessarily for anything. They're just against everything. And those challenges have perhaps brought you feelings of fear or anxiety, uh, discouragement, or even depression. A long season of darkness, a long winter of despair. We heard uh, Wednesday morning at our men's Bible study that suicides and overdoses are at an all-time high. So in the midst of this mess, what would make it right? What would make it better? What would make you happy? Or at least make Christmas jolly and bright. Let's go back to that list. The list was rather intentional. I gave a moment ago, considered in order. Maybe if your party retained or regained political power. Maybe if there was a return to the social graces of kindness and civil discourse. Maybe if inflation could be moderated so that we really could have a holly jolly Christmas. Maybe if this is finally the last variant and we could return to normal without vaccines and boosters and masks and quarantines. Maybe if there was no racial prejudice. Maybe if people really were judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Maybe if, if the Supreme Court gets it right this time since they didn't in 73. Maybe if there was less religious turmoil and division, and people knew that Mary knew. This wasn't in my notes. I threw that in there for Ethan. <laughs> Maybe if parents and school boards could agree on anything. Maybe if there was a national return to morality, to doing what is right, rather than calling evil good and good evil. Think about that list. Would any of that make you happy? I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. If you're under 50, you don't even know what that means. <laughs> Big asks, I know. I know, maybe too much to ask. And maybe that's all a bit too ethereal um, for you. Maybe you're just looking for a little Christmas cheer. 
Maybe the right gifts under the tree, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Yeah, that's it. Maybe a little snow or better yet, a white Christmas with Bing Crosby. But really, 70 degrees two days ago on Friday, December 3rd? Are you kidding me? It's even the worst of times for weather. <laughs> what would make you happy? Can I suggest that all of those things, even the big asks, perhaps could bring happiness as momentary as it may be. I may be stretching it a bit, but happiness to me seems transitory, temporary, circumstantial, meaning if all goes according to, to my likes and my politics and my plans, favorable circumstances, happy I will be. But what happens when the illusions of peace fail, when presents fade, when snow melts? Then what? Can I suggest if you are looking for the best of times, the best of times, in favorable circumstances, in, in your political persuasion, if, if you're looking for the right gifts under the tree to have a Merry Christmas, you might just be looking in the wrong place. I was struck when Joe prayed, rid us of fruitless joys we once feared to lose. We mean that? Maybe temporary happiness is okay, but, but the promise of Christmas is joy, deep-seated, eternal joy. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You understand? The latest iPhone or technological wonder can bring you happiness until maybe February. But Jesus can bring you everlasting joy. It's why, by the way, that we sing, began our service by singing joy to the world, not happy to the world. Think of, of some of the Christmas carols that you know. Oh, come all you faithful, happy and triumphant. That's not right, joyful and triumphant. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing over the plains. And the mountains in reply echo back their happy strains. Now that's echo back their joyous strains. This, this one's fun. How great our joy is the name of the song which goes like this. While by the sheep we watched at night, glad tidings brought an angel bright. How great our joy, great our joy, 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 joy. Praise we the Lord in heaven on high. Would it work like this? How great our happy, 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 happy. <laughs> one more for fun, good Christian men. Rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now you hear of endless bliss, joy, joy. Jesus Christ was born for, for this. Would it work? Good Christian men, don't worry, be happy. With heart and soul and voice, now you hear of endless bliss. Happy, happy, Jesus Christ was born for this. Really? Endless bliss and happy does not work for me, does it you? I think you get the point. Again, I think joy is to be distinguished from happy as the latter seems momentary and contingent upon outward circumstances. It doesn't seem very deep. I believe many in the world 
around us, especially our culture, they're searching for happy. But I'm not sure many have experienced deep, soul-filled joy. Because it is true, happiness can be fleeting. Here, one day, gone the next. I would even suggest the celebration of Christmas today brings momentary happiness, while the first Christmas, the true Christmas, brought everlasting joy. You see, the happy holidays of today are often quickly replaced by the gloom of January winter and the stress of January debt. But, but the joy of the first Christmas, do not be afraid, for I bring you, you good news of great joy for all the people, is an internal reality that is independent of external life, and it is found in eternal life. I believe Scripture bears this out, at least the idea that joy is something deep. So today, as we look for just a moment at Advent joy, uh, we're, we're, I know those of you who know it's supposed to go peace, uh, I mean hope, um, joy, uh, peace, joy, but we switched peace and joy, sue us. <laughs> Advent joy, I want us to grasp the real joy of Christmas, which lasts long after the tree and the lights are down, long after the wrapping paper and bows have made their way to the dump, long after the toys have lost their luster, long after the decorations have been stored in the back of the closet for yet another year. I want to talk to you today about soul-satisfying, God-entranced, Christ-exalting joy. You're not going to find it anywhere but in Christ. How is it that the birth of a baby in Bethlehem could bring such joy of which the heavenly choir of angels sang? Because it was not just any baby. This was the Savior who is Christ the Lord. So let's look at him. We say it rather tritely. Jesus is the reason for the season, but it's true. And let's remember him in this Advent time of joy. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. While you're turning, let me take you back 700 years before the first Christmas drama unfolded in, in, in Matthew and Luke. Isaiah was a prophet of God to the rebellious people of Israel, again, 700 years before the birth of Christ. Up to this point in Isaiah, you should know it has been pretty much doom and gloom, <laughs> just like today. I mean, it was the worst of times. The prophet had primarily been speaking of the impending judgment to come. But then chapter 9 begins with these rather incredible words. But there will be no more gloom. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. In, in other words, their gloom will turn to joy. Even in the midst of national disaster, global pandemic, and pending judgment, 700 years later, Matthew quotes these verses of Isaiah in chapter 4 of his gospel saying, Jesus fulfilled this messianic prophecy. He was that great light that Isaiah promised. Now, Isaiah gives us three reasons why there will be no more gloom. The first found in verse 4, 
uh, is uh, the, the Lord was going to break the yoke of their burden. The second found in verse 5 is that as there will be no more war, the accoutrements uh, of war will be used for a fire. In fact, in chapter 2, he had told them that there was a day coming when their swords would, would be um, hammered into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Will that not be a great time? Don't know if you've paid attention to the news this week. It's going to be so nice when the accoutrements of war are hammered into something useful. Not only that, Isaiah tells us thirdly, the reason there would be no burdensome yoke, the reason there would be no war is the great light of verse 1 is, is coming. He would come in the form of a child, but he would not be just any child. His name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. He was, of course, speaking of the birth of Jesus now let's look at our text, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. You say, hallelujah, because our government's not doing too well. It's a pretty familiar verse, particularly this time of the year to Christians and non-Christians alike. We hear it almost every Christmas as it was made famous in The Messiah, written by George Handel uh, in 1741. I would sing it for you, but we don't have time. Unfortunately, though, the unbelieving world would like to stop the story of Christmas right there in the verse. They'd like to keep this uh, newborn child in a manger and pull him out once a year and enjoy Christmas with familiar carols, festive traditions, and fattening goodies reserved uh, for this particular holiday season. But the verse, and by the way, the Christmas story does not stop there. He goes on to give a description of the character of this child, the identity, if you will, of this child, and the second part of the verse that everybody wants to ignore when he says, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. I want to take a few minutes to look at each of those four names that describe this child born to us, and in so doing, learn a little bit about why Jesus is the reason for this season, a little bit about who he is and the joy that he brought so that even in these worst of times, listen to me, even in these worst of times, we can know joy. Listen, Christians, in the midst of this global pandemic, Christians in the midst of this national disaster ought to be the most joy-filled people around. People ought to look at us and go, what's going on with you? Have you read the news? No, but I've read the book and I know how it all ends. We can know joy. Before we do that, let's go back to the beginning of the chapter, verse, uh, the verse I read a moment ago. I want you to notice a couple of things. For a child will be born to us. That's actually verse 6. For a child will be born to us. Isaiah already pointed out in chapter 7 that this particular child to be born of a virgin, by the way, will be with us. Remember, Emmanuel, God with us. But now he says he's going to be born to us. That's interesting. Think about that for just a moment. We don't typically think of a birth carrying any real significance to anyone except his or her parents and maybe the grandparents. The birth of a child 2,000 years ago should have little impact on our lives today. I mean, can anyone tell me um, anyone else that was born that particular year that Jesus was born. And I had two ladies come up to me at the end of the 
first service and said, yeah, John the Baptist. Whatever. How about this? Can anyone tell me uh, the birthday of Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world at the time of this child's birth in Bethlehem? No one cared when little Gus was born except for maybe his parents. And you could care less today except that is mindless history for you to know to pass a test because Augustus means little more to you than that he was a Roman emperor and more importantly a pawn used by God to issue a decree that a census of all the world should be taken. Everyone was to return to the city of his familial birth to register, so Joseph took his pregnant wife, Mary, to the place of his family's uh, origin, Bethlehem, since he was of the line of David. Well, why is that important? Well, because Micah chapter 5 said that this child, to be born to us, was to be born in Bethlehem. If, if If it wasn't for that, we would not even know Caesar Augustus's name, except for maybe historically. I mean, can anyone tell me the name of the Caesar who followed Augustus? Didn't think so. Tiberius. Think about it. Parents are, after all, the most affected by birth. They are the ones who have to feed the little guy in the middle of the night, buy his or her clothes, send him or her to school, teach him a trade, or spend a fortune sending him to college. Because it's true, birth changes the parents' lives forever, but usually just them. We've had a number of children uh, born in our church over the past year or two, and I can imagine that they've changed the, the way that their parents sleep and, and eat and do just about everything. But honestly, they haven't changed my sleep pattern at all. <laughs> but the birth of this child 2,000 years ago in a, in a faraway place changed my life and changed your life forever. This child was born not just to his parents, he was born to us. And his birth carries eternal ramifications to everyone who ever believed. From Joseph and Mary to Caesar Augustus to Tiberius to Joe Biden to everyone in this auditorium, he can turn today, he can turn your gloom to joy. Notice also the first part of the verse says, a son will be given. I love that word, will be given to us. And there you have it. That's the very essence of Christmas, you see. The Son was given to us for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He was a gift. He was unmerited. He was unearned. He was undeserved. See, we mess up Christmas. I tell you this almost every year. Santa messes Christmas, sorry, uh, Santa messes Christmas up because he's keeping a list and checking it twice and he's going to find out what? Who's naughty or nice? God's got a list too. And we all were on the coal list. And he gave us a son anyway, unearned, undeserved, unmerited. And through him, the free gift of eternal life to all who will believe. Let's turn our attention to the names given to this son that was given in turn to us. Isaiah did not intend for us to understand that when this child was born, these would be his actual names although they are, but when Mary was pregnant and asked what name she had picked out for the child, she didn't respond with, well, we've narrowed it down to four, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. Those are not names that you would find in the typical name book, and well, unless you're Mormon. 
They, they think that we're all going to become gods. We're, we're not. The fact is, she was told to name the child, child Jesus. Even today, except in the Latin culture, we don't typically name our little newborn Jesus. We'll save his people from their sins. These are names intended to describe the child, to identify the child, and they are names that he alone deserves to bear. First, he's called Wonderful Counselor. While I think that most translations correctly have the two words combined into one title, it's helpful to look at each of those words separately. First is the word wonderful. It's a wonderful life, all that. No, 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 no. The word speaks of that which is beyond human comprehension. Right? You cannot comprehend this child. Now, when you think of a little infant, there's usually not much to figure out. Right? I mean, all of you husbands and fathers, you look at your wife and say, why is he crying? Why is she crying? So, I don't know. Let me check my crystal ball. It's not that hard. If he's smiling, his tummy is full and his diaper is empty. If he's crying, his stomach is empty and his diaper is full. It's not that tough. But this child given to us was beyond human comprehension. Very strong word he uses here. Not only is he wonderful in what he does, he himself is a wonder. He is beyond the comprehension of mortal man. He is beyond you. He is beyond me. So much so that he was, listen to me, he was out of our reach. He had to then reach down to us. To come as he was would have been incomprehensible to us. So he came as one of us, born of a woman, born of human flesh but still God in the flesh. We see also he was counsel. The word speaks of wisdom and knowledge, his understanding. He was beyond understanding um, to us, but, but he himself possessed infinite wisdom and understanding. The scripture tells us in another place he has no need of anyone's counsel. It's not that you're going to teach God anything. He is the wonderful counselor, counselor the unconsciousness, incomprehensible one of infinite wisdom. And as such, we have one, listen, this is so important. He is capable of counseling us, of understanding things that we do not understand. He is thoroughly reliable. He has the insight to lead us at all times, even when we do not understand what is going on, even when our world is falling apart. He knows. Wonderful counselor that he is. This is reason for great joy. In an article I read several years ago, Pastor Bob Harvey, not Paul, Bob Harvey tells of how early in his ministry, a close friend of his died in an effort to comfort the, the widow. He shared all of his seminary textbook explanations of how and why God would have actually let this happen. But the woman, in his words, lovingly rebuked him. She said, I don't need a God like that. I don't need to understand all this. What I need is a God who is bigger than my mind. And that's what we have in a baby in a manger, a God who is infinitely bigger than our minds because he is wonderful counselor. Next, he's called the mighty God. We have here a very clear declaration that this child who was born to us was in fact God. Don't let anyone ever tell you that the Bible doesn't say that Jesus, right there, he is 
God. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Same words are used by Isaiah in the very next chapter, referring to Yahweh, which is the covenant name for God. We read these words. Now, in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who, uh, who have escaped will never again rely on those who struck them, that is the Babylonians, but will rely on the Lord. That's Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. The same words. That's who Jesus is. He's the mighty God. The unbelieving world would prefer to keep him as a little baby in a manger. It's pretty easy to celebrate Christmas. That's why everybody, billions of, I do mean B with a, billions with a B, billions of people around the world will celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Because a baby in a manger is pretty non-threatening. What accountability is there to a little baby who just goos and gauze? It's a sweet story. But what accountability is there to the mighty God, the creator of the universe, to whom we will one day answer and give an account? Kind of takes the fun out of Christmas if you don't know him, if you don't have a personal relationship with him as Lord and Savior. This is, after all, why he came, to give his life as a ransom for you and me, to turn our gloom into exceeding, exceedingly great joy. That's why we're different, you see. Thirdly, he's called the Eternal Father. It's kind of confusing at first glance. How can this baby be called the Son of the Father and the Father at the same time? In other words, how can he be the first and second person of the Trinity all at the same time? Well, not exactly. You have to understand what is being used here is a Hebrew idiom that could be translated Father of Eternity. Let me illustrate. If I wanted to say that you were the most patient or the most humble person I had ever met, I could do so by calling you the father or the, the mother, the father of patience or the father of humility. That means you, you, you possess more humility, more patience than I've ever seen. What Isaiah was saying is this. This baby to be born in the flesh, don't for a moment think that he began at that moment in Bethlehem. He is, in fact, eternal. He is both the possessor and provider of eternal life. John chapter 3, in speaking of Jesus, we read these words, he who believes in Jesus, uh, believes in the Son, has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. The wrath of God abides on him. He is the Father, the possessor, the provider of eternity, the, the one who can alone claim to be the, the mighty God and dispense eternal life to those who believe. This is good news of great joy for all people. Finally, this one to come is called the Prince of Peace. This baby was born in Bethlehem, and there was a host of heavenly angels heard to announce in Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. He came to restore peace, to bring a kingdom of peace. We're all, everybody would love to have peace right now. Again, read the news. Everyone would love to have it. I'm, I, I want to tell you right now, you know peace, and you know that peace will not reign until the, the Prince of Peace returns. He, the peace he brought through Bethlehem is realized in the hearts of his people when they are reconciled to God. Last week, J.P. told us, Romans chapter 5, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is good news of great joy. 
You see, the lack of peace that we experience horizontally is nothing compared to the lack of peace that you experience vertically if you don't know Jesus. Christmas is indeed a special day, special not just for the traditions that have arisen through the centuries. It finds its greatest significance in the lives of those who have a relationship, not with a baby born in a manger, although he came that way 2,000 years ago, but have a relationship with wonderful counselor, mighty God, Father of eternity, and Prince of Peace. For believers, those who in the past have walked in darkness, that's where we were. He's become our great light. He's turned our gloom to joy. And so as we close this morning, I want to take just a couple more minutes to talk about what joy actually is. I've contrasted it to momentary happiness. What is joy? The word is kara, and it means a state of joy, state of gladness, great happiness, a feeling of inner happiness that results in, listen, that results in rejoicing, gladness, or delight. That's who we're supposed to be. Once again, we see that the, the joy that Christ brought is an internal joy that is unaffected by outward circumstances. It does not matter what is going on out here. We have joy. We have gladness. We have great happiness on the inside that causes us to rejoice. In fact, the word for rejoice is kind of the verb form of the word joy. To rejoice is to express joy. Even today. It's interesting to note, when I did my search in the Scripture for the word joy, I was amazed at the number of times that it appears with the word shout. One-sixth of the time, 28 verses, mainly in the book of Psalms. It appears with phrases like this, shout for joy, shout of joy, shout to God with the voice of joy. In fact, let's look at a couple of those verses. Uh, Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 33, sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. Psalm 47, oh, clap you ha your hands. For those of you who think we shouldn't clap, for joy, uh, 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 hands all people, shout to God with the voice of joy. Psalm 71, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. S Psalm 81, sing for joy to God our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Psalm 95, will come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 98, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. That's just a few of the dozens that I could have shown you. With that idea in mind, the joy causes exuberant rejoicing. I want you to stop and think of that. Is that who you are today? In the midst of this great challenge, exuberant rejoicing, gladness, delight. Look at a couple of New Testament verses. I don't usually just give you a bunch of verses, but I am today. Matthew 13, the kingdom of Jesus is speaking one of his parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Everything, everything that we once counted dear, we count as loss because we have Jesus. 
John 15, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Acts 13, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Philippians 4, it's a command. Rejoice in the Lord. Remember I said that's to express joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Ah, just in case you didn't get it, again I say re- rejoice. First Peter chapter 1, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. Luke 2, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Last one, Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all times, now and forever. Amen. What's my point? The joy that Jesus brought at that first Christmas as a baby in a manger, as a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting or eternal Father, Prince of Peace, ought to be apparent in the life of the believer. People should look at us and go, don't you understand? We're supposed to be in the doldrums. We're living in a disaster. Yeah, exactly. But I've got Jesus and nothing can affect that. It ought to affect the way we live, the way we worship, the way we work, and the way we play. People ought to be able to look at us and tell in the midst of trials that we are not singing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows my sorrows. They ought to look at us and say, those are joyful people. How can you be so joyful? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Shout for joy, all the earth.